take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, starting at verse number 11. One line of that song said, There is no sinner beyond the infinite stretch of your mercy. And we want to consider that this morning as we look at uh, this uh, parable that Jesus gives on, on the prodigal son. We'll return next week to uh, our series in the book of Hebrews. Uh, but I want us to look this morning at Luke chapter 15. And we'll really, let's just start at verse number 1 to get a bit of the, the context here. Luke 15, verse number 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the, son, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring in his hands and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. This is probably one of the most familiar parables uh, that, that Jesus told. Jer Jesus 
often taught in parables, uh, but this may be one of the most well-known, the story of the prodigal son. It's important as we look to interpret a a passage like this, a parable, uh, that we know the context and we know what's going on so that we can understand the meaning of it. Uh, and, and for that, we need to understand Jesus' relationship with the Pharisees. The, the Pharisees were the religious leaders and sort of the main protagonist in the Gospels. They, they were the enemies of Christ. They hated Jesus because of the fame that he seemed to be gaining and because his teaching in so many ways was really just a criticism of their self-righteous hypocrisy. You see, the Pharisees were people who put on airs of being spiritual and being religious and holy, but but truly they were wicked. Jesus said in one place that they were like whitewashed tombs. You drive by a cemetery and it it looks beautiful. Uh, The the tombs uh, in that day often were were, uh, whitewashed. They would put whitewash on them and and, and there was a certain beauty to that. Uh, But no one wants to open up the tomb and go inside, right? And that's disgusting. And that's what Jesus said these Pharisees were like on the outside. They they looked beautiful. They looked righteous. But inwardly, he said, you're full of dead men's bones. He compared them also to, to a cup that has been washed on the outside, but hasn't been washed on the inside. Jesus saw through their false pretenses and spoke with candor to their true condition. He says in Luke uh, 16, later on, that the Pharisees are, are those who like to justify themselves before men, but he says, God knows your heart. That's what, that's what self-righteousness does. Self-righteousness is an attempt to justify yourself, to make yourself look good before men, but the problem with it is that God knows your heart. That was the problem with the Pharisees. As self-righteous people do, so often the Pharisees tried to prop up their self-righteousness by comparing themselves to people who were notable sinners. You see, when I'm trying to make myself look good and trying to present a a self-righteousness, one of the things that I always have to do is compare myself to people who don't look quite as good so that I look better. I I can't compare myself truly to the the standard of God, so I just do this comparison to other people. We see Jesus rebuke that mentality when he told the parable of the, the man who went into the temple to pray. And, and he's the religious person and he goes in and he lifts his head up to the sky and his prayer is this, Lord, I thank you for your grace. No, no, no. I thank you that I'm not like other men. I thank you that I'm not a sinner like this man over here. And Jesus said that that man was not justified before God. One of the regular accusations then against Jesus, because the Pharisees hated Jesus because he was truly righteous, one of the accusations against Jesus was, how can this guy go around with these notable sinners? We, we separate ourselves. We're, we're righteous. We don't go around tax collectors. Uh, we don't want anything to do with prostitutes and just common sinners. We, we separate ourselves. But this man, Jesus, there's something wrong with him because he eats with tax collectors and with prostitutes. Jesus told them in one place in Luke chapter 5, he answers that question and he says, it's not the righteous who need a a physician. It's not not those who are well that need a physician, but those who are sick. And so I haven't come to call the righteous, but the sick. 
I've call, come to call the sinner to repentance. But here again in our chapter, the same old accusation comes up again. And that's where our chapter begins. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. They were drawing near to, to Christ. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. What kind of person is he? He's supposed to be the Messiah. He's claiming to be this great Christian, this great rather uh, spiritual leader and, and teacher. How could he, if he really is this prophet, if he really is the Messiah, if he really is this great teacher, what in the world is he doing hanging out with prostitutes? Why is he hanging around tax collectors? Any self-respecting person wouldn't be found dead with people like that. And so Jesus gives them one more response. In fact, he, he tells three parables here to answer uh, that, that accusation. He tells the parable of a lost sheep, tells the parable of the lost coin, and then what we're going to look at this morning, he tells the parable of the lost son. And, and there's different aspects to each parable. The main point is the same in each one of these parables, though, is that God celebrates that God delights in sinners who repent. You see, that's why Jesus was around tax collectors and around prostitutes and around people who were notorious sinners. He was there because he was calling them to repentance and God was doing a work of salvation, drawing them out of this life of sin and, and to this Savior who would transform their lives. But you see, the problem was the, the, the Pharisees of the, that day couldn't, didn't want Jesus because they had this notion of self-righteousness. We don't need forgiveness. We don't need Christ. We don't need a Savior because we are our own savior we're good enough but these sinners were people who recognized that they were indeed sinners and who were willing then to draw near to Christ and what Jesus is teaching in this parable is that when that happens there is a party in heaven God celebrates he he doesn't he doesn't offer forgiveness reluctantly uh, he doesn't do it begrudgingly, but when a, re a sinner will repent and return to the Lord, God celebrates that. There is great joy in heaven. The point of this parable this morning is that no matter how far you've gone in your life of rebellion, if you will humbly return from the foolishness of your sin to your heavenly Father, He will be waiting with anticipation to welcome you home and there will be a celebration. Are, are you this morning one who recognizes your sin before God? Are you one who has recognized that, that you've messed up? And, and we use that word uh, or, or that terminology, but your sin is a great offense to God. We don't want to minimize sin. It's just a slip up. It, it is a great offense to God. Are you a person who recognizes that you have offended a holy God? And then are you willing to come to him in repentance and if you do that, he will extend great forgiveness and there will be celebration. The first thing that we see in this parable is the shame of the son, the, the shame of the son. Jesus really was a, a master storyteller. And uh, this this parable, I think he kind of pulls out all the stops uh, to, to really paint the worst picture uh, that he could paint when it comes to to this son. Every detail of the son's behavior is meant to hit against our sensibilities and to lead us to see him as a complete scoundrel. 
When this story was told, especially in the original context, there wasn't a person in the audience who, who, who wouldn't have thought, that son is a worthless person. And, and I think as we go through this, you'll, you'll begin to see the son's sin against his father as, as disgraceful. It's sin, all sin, our sin, your sin, my sin, is all, all sin is disgraceful. It's really stupid in many ways, and we'll see that as well, and it ultimately is a, a dead end. As we look to the Son, I think what we're meant to see is to see our own sin in this as well. It's one thing to appreciate the value of a good story, but Jesus is telling this story so that we might see ourselves as this Son. The first thing that we notice here about the Son's action his shameful action is that, that sin is utterly uh, disgraceful. To say that his actions were a slap in the face of the Father would, would be a great understatement. First of all, we just recognize the goodness of the Father. In every detail of this story, this, this Father is a patient, He is a kind, He is a good, He is a loving Father. There's nothing negative here uh, about the Father. So, so in no way should we read this story and, and, and think about maybe a Father who's overbearing or too demanding or unloving so that his son would want to run away from him. That's not at all what's going on here. This is a good father in every way. This is a perfect father in this story. But then we see the outrageous request of the son, and that's really what, what it is. It doesn't take up much time. He, he doesn't give a lot of fanfare, uh, but, but we should see that this is an outrageous request on the part of the son. The father was evidently very wealthy, uh, and as is still in our day. Uh, wealth gets passed down from one generation to, to the other. Uh, there were certain expectations about what would happen in that culture. Typically, the oldest son would get two-thirds of the possessions and the money and everything that went with it, and then the younger son would get one-third uh, of the inheritance. The issue was, though, clearly, that that would not happen until the father died. Right? That's the way that it works. The way that it works in our day is the way that it works. Uh, it worked in their day. The, the inheritance would not be passed from the father to the son until the death of the father. And so for the son to come at this time before his father's death and to ask and demand that he have his inheritance now, it is the height of disrespect. This was a culture uh, that Jesus lived in that, that valued honor and respect being shown to elders. And, and, and even if we have that somewhat in our culture today, it, it was heightened in their culture. So it's ex extremely presumptuous to think that he could come to the Father and demand, Father, I want my inheritance and I want it now. But probably... What, what is the worst of, of all is not just the presumption or the, the disrespect, but, but really to a father who loves his son, the, the hardest thing about this would be the cold, unloving nature of this request. Essentially, he's saying, I wish that you were dead and I want nothing more to do with you. The only use that I have for you is your money. So, so give me what you have so that I can have it now and I want nothing to do with you. He wanted the father's money without the father. He wanted the father's goods in order to finance his rebellion against the father. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that preposterous? Lord, father, I, I, I want to run away from you. I want to rebel against you. I don't want anything to do with you. Oh, but I need your money in order to finance my rebellion. What, what a 
unbelievable request to a father who so obviously loved his son. His words and actions would have been highly offensive. One of the things we need to see as we just begin in this story, though, is that is exactly what our our sin is like. Our sin, like the sin of the prodigal, is a disrespectful, presumptuous, and cold-hearted rejection of our Heavenly Father. Think about, as I prayed this morning, about all the blessings that God has given to us. God has created us to be His children and to enjoy the good things that He has created and given to to us as His children. And we're to enjoy those in fellowship with our Heavenly Father. But what has humanity done? What what have all of us done? Like the prodigal, we have said, God, I want your stuff, but I don't want you. I love the things that you have, but I don't love you. I want to enjoy all that you have made, but I don't want to enjoy them under your control. So God, thank you very much. I'll enjoy the beauty of the lake. I'll enjoy the beauty of the mountains. I'll enjoy the blessings of these finances that you have given me. I'll enjoy the children and the family and the houses and even the next breath of life. I'll enjoy all of that to the fullest, but I want to do it without you. I don't want your rules. I don't want your regulations. I don't want to have fellowship with you. I just want your stuff and I don't want you. That's That's what humans' sin is like. Sin is taking all the good gifts of our Father that He has lavished upon us and using them to run away from Him. Well, we see in this story that the, the Father restrains His action and He acts in love, leaving the door open for the Son's return. The father is exercising really extreme and unheard of patience with this child. The the right thing to do, I think many of us would probably, the first thing that would come to our mind is that this boy needs a good slap across the face. Uh, He needs a kick in the pants. Maybe he needs to be expelled from the family, but he certainly doesn't need to be given his preposterous demands. The father's willingness to, to give uh, his son, what he requests, though, I, I think is important. It's, it's not meant to be seen uh, sort of as a permissive father, a, a pushover. Instead, I think what Jesus is demonstrating here is that the father is acting in, in a patient and in a gracious way toward his son, leaving the door open that his son might return to him. The father has patience and love for the son, even in the height of his rebellion. Even in the face of the son's utter contempt for him, he continues to show love and care for his son. Just think about it. Though the son wanted nothing to do with him, he still wanted to make sure that his son was cared for. He still provided for his son. And this is what Jesus teaches us about our heavenly father. He said the the father makes the son to shine on the just and on the unjust. When we have rebelled against God, God would be completely just just to strip us away of all of his blessings and and let us be faced with immediate judgment. But God is like this father in this story who continues to provide, who, who continues to bless despite our rebellion against him. Sin is disgraceful, but sin is also a dead end. We notice here, that it doesn't deliver the happiness that that it promises. 
The, the actions of the son were a, a, a dead end. They, they didn't deliver. He seemed to believe that the key to his happiness was having this freedom from his father. If I can just get away from my father, life will be good. I don't want anything to do with him. If I could have his stuff and if I could enjoy these blessings, I, I, life would just be great. I've got to get away from his authority. I've got to get away from him. He thought that total unrestricted freedom to pursue pleasure would lead to happiness. But in the end, this pursuit of excess did not provide the lasting joy that that he thought it would. And that's the way that sin is. The book of Hebrews says that there's pleasure, that there's a fleeting pleasure in sin. That's that's the way all sin is. It, there might be a pleasure in it for, for a moment, a fleshly kind of pleasure that, that you can enjoy for, for a moment, but ultimately it is a dead end. Sin does not deliver what it promises. It promises joy. It promises happiness, but it never, it never delivers ultimately. Not only is sin a dead end, but sin is stupid. Sin is stupid. His actions, the actions of this son, they were just foolish. They were insane. They, they were stupid. Whatever word you, you want to, to, to use, this son doesn't at all consider what's going to happen. He, he doesn't at all consider the, the consequences. You, you notice here he gathers everything and he, he quickly uh, liquidates all the assets. There's no doubt that not all of this was not uh, uh, in, in cash form, uh, right? He had to liquidate these assets and as quickly as he could sell everything off, he's ready to get out of town, which in and of itself just shows the foolishness of this, the stupidity of it. But then he goes to a far country it says he goes to a far country. This is a, a Gentile nation, which means he's not only leaving his family behind, but he's leaving everything else behind, his culture, his, his people. And then what does he do once he gets there? He immediately, in verse 13, it says that he squandered it with reckless living. No thought about, how can I make this last? Should, should I invest this? What am I going to do in the future? There's no thought of that. It, it's just... What can I do right now? What joy can I have? What what delight in sin can can I enjoy in this very moment? He squandered it on reckless living. That that word reckless is just a word for for loose, for loose living. In verse 30, when his brother, which we didn't read that portion, uh, we're not going to focus on that this morning, uh, but, but in verse 30, when his brother is describing the behavior of his son, he, he says that this other son had devoured your property with prostitutes. I mean, he's just going after everything that he can go after to, to please his flesh, and there's no thought about what's going to happen in the end. What's going to happen tomorrow? What's going to happen at the point in which I run out of money? No plan for the future. But listen, this too mirrors our sin. You know, sin brings about a sort of insanity. What sin always does is that it it blinds us to its effects. The the person who's running out and having the affair, the the, the person who is going after materialism, uh, the person who's giving into their addictions, whatever it is, there's a blinding effect. There's there's a veil, it seems, over their mind that they don't think about, what is this going to bring about? What kind of consequences, consequences, what kind of damage is this going to cause in my life? Sin never asks questions about the end result. It just says, enjoy this now. 
This is what Jesus warns us about. And the Bible warns us about when it says there is a, a way, and that word way is talking about a path. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is destruction. Sin, listen to me, sin always leads to destruction. But people who choose the path of sin never think about that destruction. They, they, they rarely, if ever, think about where is this leading me? When I continue to go down this path of sin, what's going to come about in my life? What kind of damage is this going to do? What, what kind of an account am I going to have to give before God? People who are living in sin are always just enjoying it in the moment. That's what this son is doing. There's a way that seems right to a man but the end thereof is destruction. It always leads to destruction. You can't choose sin without the consequences. I, I like what Galatians 6-7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. Whatever he sows, he will also reap. And what he's saying there is if you sow to the flesh, if you sow to sinful behavior, you will reap the judgment of God. That judgment can come in two forms. Sometimes it comes right now uh, in, in your life and people can make a wreck of their life. Sometimes people are able to skate through most of life uh, without uh, facing uh, hard consequences for their sin. But the reality is there is a judgment day coming and you will not avoid that day. There are consequences that are coming to your actions. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. In other words, you can't just go off in a life of sin and get away with it and say, God didn't punish me. God, there's no, there's no judgment. I could enjoy sin and there were no consequences. That is not the case. Whatever one sows, he will also reap. And so we see just the, the disgracefulness of this son's sin and we see the insanity of his sin. But then next we see the goodness of God in a famine. The goodness of God in a famine. You see in verse number 14, after he squanders all of his wealth, after he runs through everything, in verse number 14, when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. In the Bible, whenever you see a famine, most often what you're seeing is an act of divine judgment. And that fact would not be lost on those that were listening to this parable. They would see this and, and perhaps think, oh yes, here we go. This boy is getting what he deserves. God is displeased with his actions. And they, they would be right about that. They, they would see this as an act of divine retribution. But in reality, with this divine judgment was also divine mercy. It is this famine that ultimately leads him to come to himself or to repent so what we see in this famine is it, it, it seems like the situation goes from bad to worse but in reality when this famine hits this is an act of God's grace bringing this boy to repentance had the prodigal son simply run out of money perhaps he could have found better work and and continued to to fund his debauchery continue to stay at a distance from his father but God in his graciousness sent a famine 
It is this act of divine providence that brings him to the breaking point. Unfortunately, because we are so foolish in our sin, it is often the case that the, the only in the face of a dire situation that we are brought to our senses. Sometimes as long in our lives, as long as there's the slightest bit of hope that, that we can go on, we will continue with our own course. It's only when God slams the door shut on our sinful pursuits that we are forced to recognize the vanity of our life. One of the kindest things that God can do for us when we're in sin is send a famine. And I don't mean just literally a famine. One of the kindest things that God can do is bring an act of judgment or bring an act of discipline in your life when you are running away from God. One of God's greatest gifts to His people is when He allows providential circumstances to bring you to a complete end of yourself when you're in a life of sin. We sometimes refer to this as hitting rock bottom, and that's exactly what happens with, with this uh, prodigal son. In verse 14, it says, He began to be in need. Now, earlier I said that, that every detail of the behavior of this son that Jesus gives, every detail in this story what was just meant to, dis, to, to scream and to shout how disgraceful this son's behavior was. But now every detail is meant to really just show you how low down he has gotten himself. It says that he hired himself out. Literally, uh, that word means to hire himself out. It wasn't just that he found a job. It, it literally means to join yourself, even glue yourself to someone. And, and it probably indicates really someone not who has a, a, a steady job. It, it really indicates someone who's hanging around, somebody that's got a little bit of, of wealth and is just hoping, maybe I can get some crumbs off the table right? Maybe there'll be some kind of work. Maybe I can provide for myself. That's the only hope that I have. So I'm just going to go around with this guy. And if he's got any work, if there's anything that I can do to provide for myself here. And so that's what he does. He's now at the mercy of some pagan Gentile who really cares nothing for him. And he's really got one of the worst jobs you can consider, especially for a Jewish boy this, this man sends him out to, to take care of the pigs, which is a dirty job. It's a, it's a menial job. But, but on top of that, for, for the Jewish people, pigs were unclean. And so this, this is like the height of, of, of just really being bad. And he gets so desperate in verse 16 that he, that he doesn't even, even though he's working here and doing some things, he doesn't have anything to eat. And he's so hungry in verse 16 that, that he says he's longing to eat the pig's food. It says pods, and these, these pods were actually something that really wasn't even very edible for human beings, really of no, very little nutritional value, if any. Uh, and he's so hungry, this Jewish boy who his entire life had seen that, that, that pigs were unclean, uh, he's so hungry that he's willing to eat the pig's food. But notice, notice, he, he's longing to be fed with their food, but no one would give him anything. He, he, he was so desperate, he would have eaten it, but they won't even let him eat the pig's food. That's how desperate he is. And it's in this moment then, that he came to himself. You see that in verse 17. But when he came to himself, here working with the pigs, starving to death, 
No one who loves him. No one who cares for him. He's, he's made a complete wreck of his life. This boy comes to himself. That expression that he came to himself is, is I think, meant to indicate repentance. And that's the theme. If you remember, we read in verses 7 and 10 at each one of those parables. Uh, what is the point? Look, look again at verse 7. He says in verse 7, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. And again, the same thing is, is said in verse 10. Uh, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Repentance is the theme of all of these parables. And that's what's happening with the Son. Although the word of repentance isn't used, but this idea of coming to Himself, coming to His senses is the idea that He's brought to a place of repentance. And when we look at His actions and we look what He says, the, the boy is a model of repentance. He, he demonstrates many of the telltale marks of genuine repentance. We see that before this moment, He loved His sin... And he hated his father. But when he came to his senses, he hated his sin and he loved his father. You see, that's what, that's what repentance is. When we talk about repentance, it, it begins, it's a, it's a change of mind. It's a change of, of the inward disposition of the heart. It, but that inward change always leads to external actions. And that's where it starts with the boy. The first thing that has to happen is he has to be shaken out of the insanity of his sins. And, and that's exactly what he does. He comes to himself. The Lord grants him repentance before he loved his sin and he hated his father. And now when he comes to himself, he hates his sin and he loves his father. Before he ran away from his father and into his sin. But when he came to himself, he ran away from his sin and into the arms of his father. Notice several things here that mark his repentance first he he came to the realization of his dire condition this is one of the telltale signs of repentance he came to the realization of his dire condition in verse number 17 he said i perish my actions my decisions the way that i have lived my life is is bringing about my death and he was right there was a famine and in those times when there was a famine they didn't have pork and beans they didn't have canned food and preserved food when you ran out of food you ran out of food and people died this boy was not exaggerating his actions had led to his eventual death he understood his dire condition John MacArthur says about this, he says, I am convinced, here is where I am convinced, where true repentance always begins. True repentance always begins in this place with an accurate assessment of one's own condition. You see, un until the utterly horrific condition brought about through God's providence had finally slapped him back into reality he's finally made to realize the foolishness the brokenness the the emptiness and the vanity of his life by god's grace he comes to the point where he recognizes my actions are leading to my death and that's where repentance begins when you come to realize that this sin that something i delight in something that i think will bring me joy something that i think is good for me something that maybe isn't that bad, maybe I can get away with it and just dip my toe in this a little bit, the actions that I'm choosing are actually bringing about my destruction and my death. That's where repentance begins. It doesn't minimize 
our condition. It doesn't minimize uh, our actions, but it sees it for what it really is. Secondly, he came to realize the sinfulness of his behavior as he begins to prepare his speech and he thinks, I'm going to go back to my father and this is what I'm going to say to my father. The first thing that he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Notice here he doesn't just say, Father, I've sinned against you. This isn't just a relational problem. The problem is not just that he hurt his father's feelings or that he did something that his father thought was foolish. The the ultimate problem is that his sin was against God. I've sinned against heaven and against you. This is one of the, again, the telltale signs of repentance. When it doesn't minimize sin and it doesn't say, I'm sorry I hurt your feelings or I'm sorry I shouldn't have done that because I didn't make you feel good. No, no. When, when we come to true repentance, we come to a place where we realize and recognize I have sinned against an almighty and a holy God. My sin is against Him. And it's not minimized. It's not a small thing, but it is great and it is significant. That's a marker of repentance. He came to an understanding of the sinfulness of his behavior. The boy isn't just sorry that the things are, are going badly. That's, that's where a lot of us get. It's like, yeah, I don't like my circumstances right now. I, I wish things were better. I, I, I'm kind of sorry that I've acted in this way, but I'm sorry really just because of the consequences. The boy isn't just sorry for the consequences. He's sorry and he, and he shows a sorrow over the fact that he has sinned against God. And that's a unique thing. That, that's, that's a marker of, of someone who is only, uh, only of those who are true believers and have come to genuine repentance is a recognition that, that the problem isn't just that my sin has brought about bad effects. The greatest problem is that my sin is against God. Thirdly, he comes to the understanding that he deserves nothing. In verse number 19, again, he's prepared this speech and he says to the father what, what he's going to say to the father in verse 19, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He's right. He's right. He's not worthy. When you consider his actions, when you consider the shameful way, the disgraceful way that he's treated his father, he's absolutely right. He deserved nothing from the father at this point. When we repent, we're emptied of any notion of our worthiness to, to receive anything from God. Listen, if you come to God thinking my sin's not that bad and he's loving and so maybe he'll kind of sweep it under the rug, maybe it's, it's not as bad as I think it is, I'm really not that bad of a person. When you come to God in that way, you're not coming in genuine repentance. When you come to God with a right spirit, with a right mind, you come recognizing I deserve hell. I deserve God's judgment. I'm not worthy to be called God's child. I'm not worthy to be called God's son. The only way that I'm going to receive anything is by sheer grace. He came understanding that he deserved nothing. Fourthly, he, he came to realize that his only hope was his father. No one cared for his plight here. Assuming there were lots of people around him when he had money, right? When he's paying for the prostitutes and when he's throwing parties and when he's frivolously wasting away his, his father's wealth, 
I'm sure there were lots of people who seemingly cared about him and wanted to be his friend. But at this moment, when he's in the pig pen with the pigs so hungry that he would eat their food, if anyone just cared enough to give him some pig food, he would eat it. There's nobody that even cares for him to that, that much. But he knew his father cared for him. He knew and he was reminded in this low moment when he comes to realize his sin and realize the disgraceful and the shameful way that he's treated his father, he's reminded of the fact that his only hope was his father. He recognized that if he's going to be saved, it would be through his father. He tried other schemes. He hired himself out, but none of those things were going to bring about his salvation. The person who comes to genuine repentance is the person who recognizes their only hope is the Lord. That that's all that they have. You know, it's like the old, old song that we sing, in my hand no price I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. That's all we got. And if you come to Christ thinking you're bringing anything to Him or, or there's any worthiness in you or, or that you can do this by yourself a little bit, maybe you just need help, all of that's the wrong way to think. We come recognizing our only hope is our Heavenly Father. Our only hope is Christ. And then he remembered the, the gracious character of his father. The father was so gracious that, that even his servants were treated well. That's what we see in, in verse 17. What, what did he think in there? He's saying, I'm, I'm working as a servant for this person, and he cares for me so little, he won't even let me eat the pig food. But I remember my father, and I remember how gracious he was even to the servants that we have. He treated the servants well. He provided for them. He cared for even the servants. So, so listen, I'm going to go back. I don't deserve anything from my father, but maybe he'll at least let me come back and be a servant because the way, the, the gracious way that he treated his servants is, is, is at least better than what I have now. That's the realization that the son comes to. I've been so foolish and wicked and I'm near the point of starvation. I'm, I'm without hope. But my Father is so kind. It's when he sees his condition and remembers his Father that he begins his journey home. Again, John MacArthur says this, most in that culture wouldn't even think of giving his son a second chance, but the prodigal knew his Father better than that. He seems to have had little fear that his father would have been vengeful to him. He knew his father to be merciful, even if he had never consciously thought about it before. And now, left with no other alternative, he finally is ready to go back home. And isn't that the way it works with us as well? It's when we recognize the graciousness of our father that we are, are led to come back to him. In Exodus chapter 34, we see one of the often recited uh, verses about the Lord and His character. And it says this, the, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's, that's what this boy understood about his father. And, and that's what you ought to understand about God. He is gracious. And as he returns we then see the, the celebratory forgiveness of the Father. How, how would you respond 
in, in this moment when your son has done this to you, when he's treated you so shamefully? Well, the cultural expectation in Jesus' day uh, would to be just to shame and disown him. Uh, th this was a shame culture. The son had brought shame on his family and now he needed to be disowned so that everyone publicly saw what, what happened. And we're, we're saying this boy, has he's borne the shame that, that he deserved, the shame that he brought upon this family. For most of the listeners of this parable, the only right response to a son who had, had the audacity to return would have been to deny him any kind of acceptance. Many would have assumed that the father would be justified in shunning him forever. If not just justified, that that was the right thing that he really was obligated to do. Maybe even the most gracious among them, and maybe some of us today, uh, might have agreed that the son could return, but, but he needed to do something to make up for his actions, right? Maybe his idea of becoming a servant for a while, work off his debt, show that he's truly sorry, maybe that will be what needs to be done in order for him to be restored. Once more from MacArthur, he says, As everyone fully understood that if the son were truly repentant, he would need to come crawling back to a father as a beggar. He would have to express his repentance verbally, be severely humi humiliated and scorned, shoulder all the public shame he had subjected his family to, and do everything he could to make restitution. In that culture where honor and shame meant so much, such things were simply understood. It was the only way to restore the honor of the Father. It was the only way for the Son to regain any shred of dig dignity. Maybe in our day, we maybe wouldn't be so severe, but I think most of us would still recognize this guy's got to show himself to be worthy of coming back. But what is the response that we see here? It's not that response at all, is it? The response of the Father is a response of immediate forgiveness and celebration. There's, there's joy. There's no shame. There's no anger. There's no I told you so. Uh, there, there's no, no kind of like making him feel the pressure for the while. Well, you can come back, but you need to understand what you've done. There's no lecturing. There's just an immediate welcoming back to the Son. And in fact, you notice in verse 20, it appears, I think Jesus would have us see, that it is almost as if the father is waiting in anticipation. He's waiting for his son to return. It says that he saw him a long way off. We don't want to read too much into that, but, but, but I don't think it's, it's reading too much to understand that this father is pictured as someone who's anticipating and hoping and longing. Perhaps he'd gone out every day and waited and looked down the road and hoped that his son would return. And then as he sees his son coming, he feels compassion. The immediate response in him is an anger, like, oh, he's coming back and he's going to want me to treat him good and he's going to want forgiveness and he's wasted my money and, and oh, I, I'm so angry that he's done that. That's not the immediate response at all. The immediate response, it, it tells us, is that he felt compassion he sees the son returning no anger not no holding it over his head it's immediate compassion for his son perhaps he saw his son in in his haggard condition the boy had been working with pigs he was so probably skin and bones he didn't have anything to eat he had been in a famine 
uh, and, and, and the father doesn't think to himself, well, that's what he gets. Yeah, he's coming back humble. I'm glad he's coming back, but I'm glad that he's coming back humble. Maybe he's learned his lesson. None of that. It's instantaneous compassion from the father. And not only that, but, but we see he, he's looking for him, he's waiting for him, he sees him coming, he feels compassion, and then he runs to the son, which again, in this culture, is just something that, that, that was out of step with what an adult male would do, that, uh, especially someone who was dignified, who, who was honorable. They, they wouldn't run, and especially you wouldn't run to someone who had brought so much shame and disgrace on him, but that's exactly what he does. The father's feeling of compassion is so strong that he leaps to his feet and runs to meet his son. And then he embraces him. He, he kisses him. He gives him the warmest expression of love. He puts a robe on him, a ring on his finger, and shoes on his feet. And each one of those things has significance. The robe was a, a very expensive piece of clothing that, that often would have been saved for a special occasion, something like a wedding. The shoes signified uh, that, that this was a son and not a servant. The servants wouldn't have been given shoes. Uh, and so immediately he put shoes on him and then a ring on his finger. This signified the authority over the family's possessions. To have a ring meant that everything was at your disposal. This meant that he immediately restored his son to a full standing as an obedient son. And then the father throws a lavish party. Let's, let's celebrate. My, my son has come back. Let's fill, kill the, the fatted calf two different times. Uh, the word celebration is used to describe what's going on. Let's, let's throw a party. We are happy. We are delighting. We are joyful. We are excited that our son has returned. And, and there's no dishonor. There's no shame. There's no holding it over him. He's repented. He's returning. And we're going to celebrate that. Though he had been greatly offended, the father doesn't give a tentative, conditional forgiveness, but a complete, joyful, celebrating, and an embracing, and an acceptance to the son. Well, what's the application of this story for us this morning? Several things, and we'll close with this application. The first is this, your sin is great against God, perhaps far greater than, than you've ever realized. It, it is shameful. Our sin is stupid. Our sin is an act of rebellion. It's a, it's a dead end and it's an act of rebellion against an all-loving, good Father. Every act of sin is this shameful, disgraceful act, act against our, our Heavenly Father. So let's not minimize sin. Let, let's not think, well, God's gracious, so my sin doesn't matter. No, no, it does matter. The second thing that I think we should take away is that your sin is going to lead to your destruction inevitably you may have not reached that point but i pray that god like he did in the life of this prodigal would bring you to an end of yourself and if that means bringing a famine upon you i pray that he would do it because the the greatest thing that could happen for you is that you would come to yourself you see, you may feel like the best thing that God could do for me is just continue to bless me and continue to allow me to go down this path that I want to go down and, and everything will be good. And I hope God continues to do that. But no, no, the greatest thing that God could do for you if you're running away from him, if you're choosing a life of sin, the greatest thing that he could do for you is to bring a famine into your life. Your sin is going to lead to 
destruction. Thirdly, I think we could understand and see that our Father in heaven delights. He celebrates when sinners repent. It's the theme of this parable. What you need to to recognize is that no matter how wickedly you have acted, no matter how long you've been in your sin, no matter what you've done, if you will return, if you will repent and come to the Lord through Jesus Christ, God the Father will immediately and abundantly forgive your sin. Why, Why would you wait? If you're in sin this morning, if you're running away from the Lord, why would you wait? Why, why would you continue in this? It's, it, you're leading to your own destruction and your heavenly Father stands ready to offer and extend the most lavish forgiveness upon you. What we need to see is that God's forgiveness is an act of, of sheer grace. There's nothing the Son could have done. There's nothing that you can do. Don't try to clean yourself up. Don't try to get yourself ready. Don't try to make yourself acceptable enough to God so that you can come back to God. No, no, no. If you recognize your sin right now and you see the heinousness of it, you see the disgracefulness of your sin, what you need to do is just run to the Father, run away from your sin, and run to Christ. Flee to Him. And do it this morning. It's an act of sheer grace. And then we see that God's forgiveness comes at a great cost. But it isn't a cost to you. It's a great cost to Him. In this story, the Father is the one who bears the shame of the actions of the Son. And that's what God has done for our sin through His Son, Jesus Christ. He has borne the, 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 the destruction. He has borne the shame and the disgrace of our sin. He paid the price so that you can freely return to Him. But finally, you must come home. You see, in our day and time, there's a lot of cheap grace. There's, there's a preaching of the prodigal son uh, in such a way that it allows the prodigal son to stay in the pig pen, to stay in a life of rebellion and receive the grace of the father. But that's not the story. The story is not just keep living the way that you want to live. Keep living in your sin. And God's such a gracious father, he'll just overlook it and welcome you into heaven. No, no, no. The, the point of this story is you need to return home. You need to come to yourself. You need to come to a place of repentance and run away from your sin and flee to the Lord. And that's what I would invite you to do this morning. If you've never done that before, do it this morning. Don't delay. Don't wait. But, but even if you have, even if you are a believer, if you have begun to wander off in sin, I would encourage you now, turn away from that sin and come to Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning grateful for your grace we're grateful for a grace that is greater than all of our sins we're grateful that you're our heavenly father that you're so gracious that you're so kind that you're so slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love god but i pray that you would not that you would help us not see that this is a a license to sin that your graciousness means that we should just continue in sin, that grace would abound. Lord, I I pray that we would feel the weight and the judgment that is coming and that is certain upon all sin, and that that weight would lead us to flee to you as our loving Heavenly Father. I pray that you would do this in Christ's name. Amen.